Hello, everyone. I am Vern Davis. I'm the host of Plant Profits. And thanks, everyone, for joining me here today on Plant Profits. And Plant Profits is brought to you by Protus Global. Uh, my next guest advises companies on matters of regulatory compliance, corporate transactions, policy advocacy, strategic planning, governance, and dispute resolutions. You can probably guess my next guest is an attorney, and she is. She now operates a boutique law firm serving the psychedelic and cannabis space. The name of the law firm, which I really, um, uh, really love, uh, she's a founding partner of Plant Medicine Law Group, PMLG, and her name is Hadas Alterman. And I am looking forward to having this chat with you. Hadas, how are you today? Good morning, Vern. I am fantastic. I'm so excited to be here and I'm, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So look, I'm, I've obviously, um, you have an interesting background. Okay. Um, you are an Israeli, you were born in the holy city, <laughs> Jerusalem, and, um, and, and somehow you got to the U.S. So how, how did you get to the U.S. and why the Bay Area or was Bay Area the first stop or that was just home? Oh, I love this there? question. OK, yeah. so um, it was actually not an act of my own agency that got me here because I was very young. I was like three years old when my family came here. Um, and essentially, you know, my my mom's family is from Afghanistan um, okay. and they fled that country in the 50s came to Jerusalem my mom was born about a decade and a half later my dad's family is from Chile um and he fled in the 70s because of the the coup with Pinochet yeah the uprising yeah very yeah. dictator mm -hmm. um and so he moved to Israel they met um and uh few years later had me that was also around the time of a lot of turmoil with um like sort of gulf war saddam hussein all sorts of craziness and my dad was at um the market one day and there was a run on duct tape the same the same way there was a, like a run on toilet paper during covid yeah. there was a run on duct tape because the threat of chemical warfare had become so, so great and so overwhelming that Israelis were buying duct tape to try to tape up their windows, which, of course, wouldn't work in the event of a chemical weapon being dropped. Wow. Um, and he knew it wouldn't work, but he was like, I'm doing this anyways because I have to do something because I feel out of control and I have a young baby. Um mm -hmm to protect. And he decided to move. He was like, this isn't, I can't raise a family here. Um, wow. and he was in the middle of getting his PhD in psychology. Um, okay. there was a program in Berkeley that he was excited about attending and his two best friends had recently moved to the Bay area. Um, so we pretty randomly, like we got here pretty randomly <laughs> in some ways. Um, but so a day at the market, a day at the market for your dad, a day at the market. The thing yeah. that had precipitated that was, or came before that was, um, 
So babies can't wear gas masks. Only adults can wear gas masks. So what you'd have to do is you put babies in like a sealed off tent when the Mm -hmm. sirens would go off as like either like a warning, like a rehearsal siren or an actual siren. Um, And what infants were dying in these tents, they were suffocating um, because they were too sealed off. So Mm -hmm. it was just, you know, high, high stress. And then, and then you move to California and become a weed lawyer and there's no stress anymore at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's a hell of a story. Um, so it, 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 and there's a lot between the day at the market and getting to California. And I understand. Uh, So are you the only child? No. So I have a younger brother. Um, he is 28. He's an, an ER doctor. Okay. Um, yeah. So he outdid me on in like the race of good Jewish kids trying to be doctors and lawyers. He, he won. (laughs) He won. I can admit you Um, you guys hit the stereotype, you know, we hit the stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. Really wanted to make sure to have, you know, as stereotypical as possible kids in their careers. Um, and they did. And I actually have, I have a bunch of step siblings too. So both okay. of my parents are repartnered. Um, okay. And I've got, so, you know, we went from having a really small nuclear family in the States, just the four of us to them actually splitting, remarrying, inheriting tons of step siblings and their relationship is really good. So now we actually have like a pretty big family here. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that is, that is very interesting. So when you, when you look at that journey, but then you look at, you know, being in California at a three years old. Uh, and so what, what were your influences, you know, and cause you're at a place now that's, that's really cool. And it's very obvious you're doing exactly what you want to do. And, uh, but what, what were the influences as you before college? I want to talk that period of time before you made a decision to go to school. Yeah. Um, or where to go to school. So I think that there were a couple influences. My my dad has always been my biggest intellectual influence. Um, I think that because I was so young while he was still in grad school, I really saw him grind. I saw him, you know, working a pretty low paying nine to five as a grad student and then coming home and being a dad and writing his dissertation. Um, and I think there was like that, that work ethic, influence from him, but also I've always been fascinated by psychology. I've always been fascinated by mental health. I've always been fascinated by consciousness and the subconscious. And he's always sort of been there to answer my questions and give me further information. And even from, you know, a young age, like recommending books. And, um, he would sort of, I remember being really young and he would like test my knowledge and basic sort of instincts around psychology. And so I think I grew up, um, in an environment that was very mental health forward and friendly. Um, and from a young age developed, um, a pretty big vocabulary, um, both, I guess, literally, but also more importantly, metaphorically around that whole field. Um, I think my, my seventh grade English teacher was the first person who I wasn't related to that 
told me that I was smart and capable and believed in me. Okay. Um, and that's, that's so important. so important. I mean, I think that is just so important to go to a place and somebody says you're smart and it's cool. It's so important. And it was so important for me mm -hmm. because I went to a private day school in Marin County. Okay. And we were one of very few families that wasn't like really wealthy mm -hmm. uh, at all. And, you know, at the time my, my parents came here with nothing. My right. mom was a teacher at the school is the only reason we could afford to, I could afford to go there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is the mid nineties. I think that the awareness we have now around the dynamics of privilege and ethnicity mm -hmm. and socioeconomic status was really not it was not there and we didn't have a vocabulary to like really peel apart those dynamics and understand how people in the, in the less powerful part of the power mm -hmm. dynamic might feel. And I was a sensitive kid and an intuitive kid. And so I think I really felt less than everyone as a result. And so having someone come in and be like, this is why you're special was huge yeah. Um, huge. I mean, I think yeah. I put that emotional thinking about it. And then um, I would say the third influence was just growing up in Marin and and getting to experience all of the alternative, like the the very Bay Area unique alternative subcultures, like you know, the just the remnants of like Grateful Dead sort of hippie culture, um, the the remnants of the 60s and 70s, various civil rights groups. Yeah. Um, and then just the nature here. And like, I'm reading this book called um, PECAL right now, which is about um, a, uh, a, a chemist um, who had a DEA license um, to work with um to work with all sorts of controlled substances out mm -hmm. of his home and this was in the east bay and i think you know i didn't know that as a child i didn't know what mdma was i didn't know um you know i didn't know what any of this stuff was obviously but i think growing up in a place where like there's just so much innovation and what was happening in the rest of the country and the rest of the world was often anathema to like what we were doing here um, I think it just made me feel really comfortable being sort of weird and yeah. different. <laughs> well, not weird. And, and you definitely, Hadas, you are that that is not weird. That's that's a very cool story about your influences. And we're gonna take a quick break. Okay. And then <clears throat> Hadas, when we come back on the other side, we're we're gonna really dive into uh, a place I, I really like, Santa Cruz. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we're gonna dive into that. And I'm Vern Davis. I am your host of Plant Profits, and Plant Profits is brought to you by Produce Global. And we'll uh, be right back after a quick break. Plant Profits will return so our sponsors can profit from these messages. Okay. All right. All right. And also, I'm afraid I have to, I have a 7.30. I'm going to jump. Obviously, Hadas and Vern have got it. So, but I, I'm loving what I'm hearing, you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with the presser. Um, they're doing a cool press conference about cannabis tax. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, um, that's great. Okay, here we go. Hadash, you about ready? Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, Hello, I'm Vern Davis. I'm your host of Plant Profits, and Plant Profits is brought to you by Produce Global. My guest today is the founding partner of Plant Medicine Law Group, and uh, Hadas, Hadas Alterman is is her name, and uh, we're having this cool chat about influences uh, uh, before she she went off to Santa Cruz, uh, and uh, she was telling us about a, a book that was just really cool. That was something happening at the time she was. Uh, growing up, and she wasn't aware, but now there's a book that's given her some insight, and it just really puts a stamp on uh, all the things that she thought and loves about growing up in the Bay Area. So, Hadas, why don't you tell us more about that book? Yeah, so I'll just, um, yeah, I'll briefly say, you know, I didn't know about this book, as you said, as, you know, when I was a kid, but I think it really speaks to how much, like, the the potency and sort of the rebel spirit and the innovation of the Bay area has mm-hmm. just been, it's just in the air and you, you feel it when you're a kid. And I think it really shapes you. So, um, so this book is called PCAL and it, it's an acronym for, I might get the pronunciation of this word wrong. Cause it's very uh, long and sciencey, but I, it's a uh, phenethylamines I have known and loved. And it's, a book written by a chemist named Sasha Shulgin and, and his wife, Ann Shulgin, who synthesized and characterized hundreds of psychedelic compounds in their home in the East Bay. And they, they tested the subjective effects of each one of them on themselves um, and then members of their small research group. So, okay. you know, those are just the types of things that... Um, that are happening have been happening behind the scenes here and and I think that's why I'm so happy to have grown up here and be back doing this work oh that's awesome it just fits you know sometimes things just fit and that 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 really just fits that you're 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 back there doing this this work now now you made a decision to go to UC Santa Cruz now I've been to Santa Cruz a lot I used to live in I lived in the Bay Area a couple times so UC Santa Cruz um, I just love going down there because I always felt like I was stepping back a little bit in time and um, I've never met a more chilled place. And so so tell me about your decision to go there and, and study what you study. So I actually started off at UCLA. Um, OK, I in high school, I was really into prestige, achievement and excellence and UCLA you know, next to Berkeley was one of the highest ranked UCs in California. Um, And I worked really, really hard to get in because I knew that it was the best. And then I got there and was very shocked to find how many people were just interested in partying and drinking, which at the time was something I loved also. But I think I wanted a little bit more of an intellectual, interesting environment and Um, About two years in, I found out that UC Santa Cruz had a program um, where you could study agriculture, food systems, and social justice, the sort of intersection of those two. That's deep. Yeah. Yeah. It's real deep. And um, I don't know why, like so many things in my life, it was completely random. I just felt really drawn to it. I had spent the pre- the previous year in Nepal working with farmers and um, yeah, just felt this, like felt 
this uh, sort of anger on behalf of how we treat the people who are responsible for keeping us alive by growing food. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that's interesting is, you know, I had no idea that I was going to ever be representing farmers as an attorney, let alone cannabis cultivators. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's sort of, it it really circled back. Um, And it's, you know, sad. I think that the way globally we treat farmers is mirrored by the way the cannabis industry, at least in California, is treating cultivators right now, where the taxes are unworkably high. It's crazy. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah it, it, it really it, it really is insane. And um, it, it sounds like because when when I was looking at at, at just having this conversation, Hadas, I, I really start to think about um, you have early on in your life, this sense of restoration. Mm. And, um, and, and it, it, it really started to connect. And maybe for me, to you, it just really what you just talked about, about moving to UC Santa Cruz and, and really uh, dealing with these farmers. And then you did an internship or, or, or something that was connected to that. Um, it's to me, very interesting. And then, you, you know, so that happened and, and that, were you always thinking about being an attorney? Cause you went off to Berkeley and became an, a, you went to law school, got your JD. So th- was that something you always thought about? What, what was the moment in time where you said, this is going to happen? So, um, Short answer, no, I didn't know that I wanted to be an attorney. I had no idea. I I think I I was like, I'm going to be either a DJ or a yoga teacher. Um, And I was at a protest in Oakland and I got arrested Okay. along with around, I think like 500 people got arrested that day. There had been a lot of protests in Oakland for the past few months and Oakland police department was over it and they decided to make an example out of 500 people locked us all up Mm -hmm. um and i so um there's this thing that the police will do during a protest called kettling well they'll come in from both sides of a street um Mm -hmm. and sort of squeeze everyone in and pick people off and start arresting them and i didn't want to get in any sort of conflict with the police. I didn't want to get in trouble. I certainly didn't want to get arrested. So I just ran to like the sidewalk and was like, I'm just going to wait over here. I got pushed into a building, the YMCA in Oakland. um, And they came into the building and arrested everyone anyways, because they found us inside. They told us that we were going to get charged with felon uh, with burglary Um, which is a felony. I had no idea. I hadn't been to law school yet. So I didn't know that burglary, the the elements of burglary are very specific and technical. There was no way that ever would have worked. But we were in jail for five days. um, Five days on a bogus charge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, it it was really, really wild. And, um, you know, five days is nothing compared to like all of the people who have spent months, years, their lives. But um, while we, they moved us into, um, from the holding cell into 
gen gen pop general population and i just remember feeling so powerless and so helpless and feeling like you know i'm talking to all of these people who are also stuck in there for you know mm-hmm. longer than me and they all had stories that related to nonviolent drug offenses and it was really sad um, and really upsetting and just seeing the way incarceration sort of pulled people apart from their families. And like, once you have contact with the system, you're likely to continue having contact with contact. Yeah. And I was like, this is garbage. I want to be a lawyer. I want to have some level of like power and authority to help people um, because our system is not helpful in that regard yeah. at all. So that was the moment. That was the moment. <laughs> yeah. And the rest and the, the, the rest is how it would say, would say history. And you did it. And you immediately got into useful work, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I, it takes a really long time as a lawyer to learn how to actually help anyone because law school gives you some background information. Um, and then you really have to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, before, before I think before you can be truly of service. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did jump into doing something I was interested in yeah. right away, which was nice, which was cannabis. Yeah. So, and why cannabis? So let's talk about, let's, let's talk about, because the rest of this conversation is going to be about canna- cannabis and psychedelics. Yeah. So, so let, let's, let's talk about why you decided, you know, as soon as you could, right. You, you got involved you know, six, seven, eight years ago and to the, to the game uh, on the legal side. So tell me about the impetus to all of that. So, you know, I think that I went to law school on a whim, partially, like, I think, you know, now that I'm saying that it almost feels like it was sort of a trauma response. Like I felt really, really powerless in this situation and decided I never wanted to feel that again. So I was like, Oh, I'll go to law school. You know, I think I could have reacted many ways, but that's how I chose to react. Um, and it's not that my heart wasn't in it, but I was really young. I had just graduated from college and it was quite the quick and bold decision to make for someone who had not ever considered being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so when I was there, I didn't feel like, um, fully, you know, I didn't feel like this is what I've always wanted. I want to, you know, work at a big law firm. I want to move to New York city, make a bunch of money, um, and be like really entrenched in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was still, I was still me. I had been, um, working at a music venue in Oakland, and going to tons of protests and <laughs> learning about alternative food systems um, and reading a bunch of like Michael Pollan and Michelle Foucault. And I just, I so wasn't like culturally um, comfortable in that environment. And so I, I knew I wanted to do something different. Um, and around the time I first started, um, like my, my one L year, I was invited to go to a sweat lodge. Um, what is uh, that? So a sweat lodge, it's really interesting. So basically, um, in, and the, in like the Lakota tradition, which is the, the native American, Mm -hmm. um, peoples who, who, uh, you know, I, 
amongst others that use the sweat lodge ceremony. Um, one of the reasons they use it is as a purification ritual before hunting. So you go in to this, um, it's sort of like a round, small dome. It's made out of willow branches and then covered in heavy, heavy, heavy fabric. So it's really dark. And um, all of the steam that is created in the sweat lodge from pouring water on rocks. This is, this, this is interesting. <laughs> I've seen this on the, 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 the show Yellowstone. Yes. Yes. I haven't watched Yellowstone, but everyone tells me to. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that that in some ways, it was like my first sort of transpersonal experience where I was connected to something and seeing something and um, just aware of something outside of my own consciousness mm-hmm. um, and growing up, you know, a child of, of a psychologist and just around a lot of um, very cognitive based stuff. Um, and, you know, having been in school for my entire life, um, I've been really in my head and this is the first time it occurred to me that healing was something that can also happen in the body through processes that are stimulated through external sources and sort of allow your brain to go different places Um, and sort of, you know, uh, yeah. So from there, I got introduced to plant medicine. Um, I started learning a lot about the war on drugs and how basically every single thing we think we know about drugs is wrong. Wrong. Yeah. Um, And then cannabis, became legal in California right around the time I graduated. And I think the thing that really drew me to it was that it was new mm-hmm. and that it wasn't steeped in old models of, you know, business as usual and um, just sort of the stuffy buttoned up way that, that, things evolve once they've been around for a long time and have had a chance to be subsumed by cultural norms. Um, and it just felt sort of like wild west and unknown. And I've always, I think I've always been sort of drawn to that. So it, it wasn't with, with cannabis, it wasn't so much the substance that was really interesting to me. It was more of the culture around it. And then with psychedelics, it was very much like but the substance. substance. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I think that is not uncommon. And um, look, we're going to take a quick break and come back on the other side. We'll we'll really dive into the work you're actually doing in the uh, <clears throat> in the game here. And um, my guest today is Hadas Alterman. She is the founding partner at Plant Medicine Law Group. This is Plant Profits, and I'm your host, Vern Davis. We'll be right back. Plant Profits will return so our sponsors can profit from these messages. Hey, welcome back to Plant Profits. I'm Vern Davis. I am your host. Um, My guest today uh, is is great. Uh, Very interesting background. Hadas Alterman. Uh, she's an attorney, obviously, founding partner at Plant Medicine Law Group. And Adas, we've, we've really gotten to the place where, uh, you know, we all know you're in cannabis and psychedelic. You, you are in a, in an, a legal career in this environment. Um, tell us about what you're doing. What, what are the movements 
you're either leading or participating in that you think it's critical for both of these um, uh, movements, the cannabis psychedelic movement to, to really hit home? Sure. So um, I'll start with psychedelics and then talk about how I think that that differs from cannabis because okay. they are so different, especially yeah. from the policy and political backgrounds with psychedelics. I mean, we're super early on. So right now, the name of the game from the policy perspective is, um, you know, I think education is a really big part of it, educating legislators and electorates on what this is, why it's not what they thought it was, why it's not what D.A.R.E. told them it was or what Nancy Reagan told them it was um, and, you know, how it can help people and who it can help and and the very, very low potential for abuse that most of the psychedelics, um, well, that psychedelics generally present. Um, and, And then the high level for the high level of possibility for healing. So, Um, there's that, that's kind of the most basic level. And then there's the actual policy changing work. So there's all sorts of measures right now. Um, gosh, we've got things happening, um, in New York, there's a really promising bill, um, that could be voted on as early as the spring. That would be sort of a medical use bill for psilocybin. Um, there's a decrim bill that I helped to get introduced. There's Mm -hmm. a bill in Washington state that would legalize psilocybin for, um, some a hybrid of therapy and adult use. There's something in Virginia. There's something in Michigan, Colorado, Maine. Um, it's really, are you touching all of these in the psilocybin world? Are you touching all of these? Um, I was involved, I was involved in one of the bills in New York that's currently in play. And then my main work in terms of, of psilocybin, um, uh, policy right now is in Oregon. So Oregon passed measure 109, um, in 2020 during that election cycle, which basically creates, um, a psilocybin services program. And we can sort of think about that as if you took, um, the medical model of cannabis and the adult use model um, and sort of combine them. So you have a hybrid system where people are going in, getting screened, getting treated by licensed facilitators at licensed centers with psilocybin, but they don't necessarily need to have medical conditions. And the people who are guiding the trips are not necessarily doctors. Um, one question. So not having metal, uh, medical conditions with that, with, if, if I'm taking psilocybin, right. Uh, for therapy, is that not considered medical? I love this question. So, um, this gets into like the sort of zoomed out very, very big picture of how psychedelics are being legalized and how they'll be introduced to, um, you know, patients and everyone else in the United States at the federal level. um, So what you hear about a lot and, you know, the big drug development companies that at least until recently had been doing really, really well in terms of um, stock prices, um, the whole biotech sector sort of took a plunge recently, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're doing drug development, which essentially consists of taking compounds and um, 
putting them through clinical trials, the FDA clinical trial program. So they're testing them for safety and then they're testing them for efficacy. And then they're seeing what the side effects are. And if they get cleared by the FDA, then these drug development companies have a patent on the drug that they just tested, um, which is what incentivizes them to spend millions of dollars doing the drug development. Um, and then they bring them to market. So then, mm-hmm. you know, assuming in, in 2023, um, MDMA clears the FDA clinical trial, um, it's a phase, phase three, then a person theoretically will be able to go to a doctor and get prescribed MDMA for um, treatment resistant PTSD. And okay. they won't be able to take it home and do it. Um, it'll be guided, um, but that's very much- meaning you, you you participate in a clinic. Yeah, you would. So you would go, and I think the best practices are still being dialed in. But you would probably be in a room for the duration of the trip with two different facilitators. At least one of them would probably be licensed as a therapist. Um, the okay. other one would just be trained. Um, and beforehand, you would have preparation talk about your goals, talk about your fears, get some context around, you know, what's, what's going on. Um, and then afterwards there's follow-up sessions and just integrating what, what you, um, experienced because what happens with psychedelic assisted therapy, um, and I think psychedelics in general, um, is that I think psychedelics take you to a, a trailhead in your consciousness. Um, but then after the trip, you have to choose to walk the trail and that's sort of the integration. You see the lessons, you see the patterns, mm-hmm. um, you know, certain parts of your brain are dialed down, certain parts of your brain are dialed up. And that's why mm-hmm. you sort of experience, I mean, the word psychedelics, actually, this is sort of, I'm getting off track, but I'll just, I think <laughs> it's a fun story. the word psychedelics comes from psyche, which is mind. And then Delos, which is manifesting. So you're sort of mind manifesting, you're uncovering things in your mind you couldn't otherwise see. Um, And it was actually, it was coined by a British psychiatrist while he was writing letters to Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. Um, And he said the phrase, to fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of a psychedelic. Um, and it's, I think that that's a really cool phrase because you can sort of have this hellish experience or this beautiful experience, but when you have a guide and a goal, you can really go into whatever you're experiencing and then walk away with those lessons and implement them. I learned a lot. I learned a lot just now. (laughs) I I did. I, I learned a lot. I didn't know that you could literally direct your trip. Well, so that's an, I'm I'm glad you phrased it that way. So I think the reason we call guides guides is that it's not about directing the trip. I think it's about being present with people as they follow the direction that their own consciousness takes them on the trip. Um, Because everyone's going to have their own experience and different things will arise um, Mm -hmm. depending on depending on the substance, but also I think really depending on the person and their environment. And and there's this concept of set and setting, which basically, um, which basically is saying, you know, the things that are going to determine your trip in large part are your mindset. So like how you want to go into this and how you want to approach it. And then your setting, like 
where are you? Are you somewhere where if you start crying, um, people are going to look at you and feel like, uh, you know, not like Mm -hmm. you're, you're being inappropriate in the context, or are you somewhere people will hold space for you? Um, and I think, you know, the general consensus is when things get difficult, when things become hellish on a trip, you actually just, um, the sort of the flight instructions that they they'll give before people engage is you really just want to go into it and be open to it and like feel the pain, feel the fear, feel whatever it is you're feeling because going through it is sort of the only way to actually get out of it. I got to do this. You got to do uh, it. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, um, I, I, I got to do that. Uh, that that's pretty, pretty interesting and pretty heady stuff. So a lot going on. Um, give me a couple points here before we wrap it up of, of what the, the psychedelic journey and the cannabis journey, what the psychedelic journey can learn from the cannabis journey. Uh, if anything, and, and, and it, it, that may or may not be even possible, but if it is, what, what should the takeaway be? I love that question. So I think there are many, but the one that I'm really focused on, um, in my work and, and particularly right now in my work in Oregon on the equity subcommittee, that's, um, one of the groups that's helping advise the Oregon health authority draft the regulations that will implement the psilocybin services act that I just, um, touched briefly on right um is you know this idea that with cannabis you had an entire universe in the legacy market that was not given broad enough on ramps to enter the regulated market um and that causes the underground market to eclipse the regulated market. And that creates all sorts of, you know, misalignments and misincentives from the consumer perspective, because why would you go to a dispensary to pay way more to get, you know, you get the same product um, from whoever you were buying from before for cheaper. Um, It also excludes people from the market who really do belong to be, you know, do, should, have a place in the market. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, with cannabis, I'm speaking about specifically anyone from communities that's been adversely impacted by the war on drugs, I think has more of a right to reap the benefits of legal cannabis than anyone else. And I see that as like very specific and targeted um, reparations that like we can quantify that to a, a dollar amount in some ways, you know, like we can look at the harm that's been done to communities that are, you know, there's black and brown urban communities. There's predominantly white, poor rural communities. Um, I know you had Johnny Casali who has an amazing story on the show uh, last month. Um, And I think that, you know, making sure that those people get included is so important because of the history of the war on drugs. Um, And those people deserve a place and the regulations are preventing them from having a real place and from benefiting and not just being recipients or employees, but being owners, being bosses um, and flipping that paradigm. So I think what psychedelics can learn from that, even though the history of the war on drugs is sort of different and the impacted groups are different with psychedelics, um, the way that I see that being really important there, you know, making sure that 
people from low-income communities, communities of color are represented in like the leadership and the ownership of the space is because at the end of the day, what we're dealing with when we're providing these services is human consciousness and subjective experience. And I think it's really important to have, um, you know, have a regulatory system that allows for people who don't have tons of um, access to capital to still open up a, a licensed service center in Oregon or wherever and provide services in their community in a way that's culturally competent. Um, and not everyone cares about that. You know, like not everyone seeking psychedelic assisted therapy is like, oh, I need someone that looks like me. Oh, I need someone that understands what it's like to grow up poor or somehow, you know, persecuted. But I think a lot of people may. And what we found is that a lot of people do. Um, and I think it's just, you know, we have an opportunity in psychedelics to have an industry that's not like every single other industry. And part of the problem with every other industry is that the people at the top all look the same and frequently think the same. And so getting to see something built from the ground up, there's a real desire to not only flip the script in terms of drug decriminalization and liberalization, but also like who has access to to power and authority um, and how can having women in leadership, people of color in leadership, people from all sorts of unrepresented or underrepresented groups um, be calling the shots alongside everyone else that's already calling the shots. And what would that create that is different, beautiful, special, better than what we have now? I love that. That's great. And though that's a terrific way to, to end the, the show. Why don't you, Hadass, uh, uh, tell us how do uh, folks interested, how do they contact you and your group? Um, our website is www.plantmedicinelaw.com. And my email address is um, my first name, Hadas, H-A-D-A-S, at plantmedicinelaw.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hope that anyone that wants to get in touch does, because um, I would be happy to chat. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, this is Plant Profits, and Plant Profits is brought to you by Protus Global. Our guest today uh, was Hadas Alterman, a founding partner at Plant Medicine Law Group. And she just told us how to get in touch with her. And um, her and her partners are, and their firm are involved uh, in this movement. And they're, they're really in it for all the right reasons. And um, that makes just uh, so much sense to me. And I want to thank you for being on our show today. And I want to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, you can download episodes of Plant Profits by going to CannabisRadio.com, or you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Plant Profits and look for this episode with Hadas Alterman of the Plant Medicine uh, Law Group. And you can now also follow Protus Global through our social networks, including LinkedIn, Insta, Facebook, Twitter. Finally, learn more about how we are building companies and the work that we do every day, how we're changing lives uh, at Protus Global, and that's P-R-O-T-I-S global.com. 
This is Plant Profits. I'm your host, Vern Davis. And until next time, cheers. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.